So I knew her name was Rebecca and I knew she was 23. So when my husband and I were waiting in the surgical waiting room, everyone else in that waiting room had white hair, <laughs> but, <laughs> but she um, had, she was very tiny. She was so tiny. She might've been five feet tall and she had her hair in pigtails and um, she sat in a love seat with her mom across from my husband and I, and I don't know if she knew that I would be her donor, and but I knew she was my recipient, and then they called her name Rebecca, and she stood up. Welcome back to Donor Diaries. It's really important to me that we do our best to normalize living donation on Donor Diaries because ultimately, it's everyday people who donate organs. We aren't heroes. We aren't morally superior. We're just people taking action to help other people in a way that hasn't been totally popularized in our country yet. But as a donor myself, I really take my hat off to a subset of donors who in the transplant world we refer to as double donors. These are living donors who have donated more than one organ, most commonly kidney and liver. According to the United Network of Organ Sharing, only 133 living donors in the entire U.S. have donated both a kidney and a portion of their liver to two different recipients. A few years back, I'd never heard of such a thing, but more recently, I've been seeing it in the news more and more, and I've been meeting more double donors, too. Many transplant centers won't even entertain the idea of letting somebody donate twice. However, other centers are taking a second look and essentially asking, well, why not? If the donor is mentally and physically fit to donate a second time, then let them donate. Today's guest is double donor extraordinaire Lynn Bulldock, who tells a brave, bold, and vulnerable story about her double donation experience. Welcome, Lynn. Good morning, Lori. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Let's see. So I am 54 years old. I live in Bangor, Maine. I love, love, love the snow. So the colder, the better. The more snow, the better. I'm a registered dietitian. I spent most of my career in weight loss surgery, um, but through a, a series of events related to my organ donation, I changed careers and worked as a dialysis dietitian. And more recently, I now mentor other people thinking about kidney donation and occasionally liver donation. I'm also a stained glass artist and I I enjoy outdoor activities. I like to run and I'm a cyclist and um, I try to do a, a half marathon or a century periodically to keep myself motivated. That's amazing. Well, welcome, and thank you so much for coming today. You have one of the more incredible stories I've heard about organ donation, and I'm so excited to have you share your story on Donor Diaries today. I'm happy to be here. Len, so you became a kidney donor first. When did the idea to donate a kidney happen for you, and what was the motivation behind wanting to donate a kidney? 
the, the first thing that happened was I, I was embarrassed about this initially, but I saw a post on social media. And I think I'm hearing that's becoming more common now. So I, I can maybe take away my concern about how trivial that sounds. But the a colleague had posted a picture of a vehicle where on the back it said type O kidney needed. And I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder about that. I had been banned from donating blood from the Red Cross at the age of 19 because they said I had hepatitis. Um, turns out they were very wrong about that, and uh, but it would take three decades before they would allow me to come in and be retested. So that's another story. But when people around me, and specifically my husband, would donate, I would just be like, Grr! so upset that he could do this thing and I couldn't. And so there was something compelling about this post that spoke to me because I wanted to try to do something right. And so when people ask this story about my organ donation, my first donation, I often tell them that story, the Red Cross story. It's a good story, but it's not the whole story. For me, I had an abortion at the age of 14 after I was raped. I now know they call that date rape, but back then that wasn't a term used in the in the mid 1980s. And I think I think that a piece of me thought that in doing this thing, I would somehow try to make things right for myself. You know, because even though I'm much kinder in my head now to my 14 year old self, I felt horrible guilt and shame about that. And um, so I think in donating an organ, I was trying to just pay back what I felt guilty about doing. Well, yeah, yeah. You were just a child. I was a child, but uh, had to grow up pretty quickly after that. Did you have a lot of support around you when that happened? There was not a whole lot of support. There was a decision given to me by my parents to either have the child at a Catholic home for unwed mothers. That was quite far from where I lived or to have an abortion. And I was left to make that decision at 14. Mm -hmm. I think if I had to do it all over again, I would still make the decision that I made. But I've come to think about it a little differently now, too. Lori, which is that I don't want to use the word happy accident. That's that's not really appropriate here. But if, if that had to happen in order for me to get my life together, become more serious as a student, and maybe even to go on and become a double donor, then, then I can't regret that that happened to me. It was something I had to go through. It's a really powerful way to look at a very sad situation. I think I can look at it that way now because uh, this month is 40 years ago that that abortion happened. Mm -hmm. But I certainly didn't feel that way, you know, in the first decade after it happened. I was felt guilty. I was ashamed. There were hints about it in school. And it was a Catholic school? No, no. But my family was very Catholic in this tiny town that we lived in. And my dad was very involved in the Catholic church the knights of columbus and yeah there was a lot of shame uh that he felt over this also and so there was he had to resign from that and 
I was made to go to confession. It was, it was quite horrible. Yeah. How do you confess? I just had an abortion. Go say 10 Hail Marys. And, you know, really, there, what can you do to make that better? So I don't know, maybe organ donation was part of it. In a time where there wasn't a word for what happened to you, it, it must have been terrible feeling like you had to confess something when in reality you were a victim. Exactly. And yet I just felt like I got myself into that situation. I, you know, should have been able to make it stop. Although keep in mind, my my 14-year-old brain was, you know, just like, well, that happened, you know. And, and then to make matters worse, it wasn't um, evidently clear that I was pregnant and it would take a few different tests to figure that out. How did that shape your adult life? I think after that, I became very serious. I think I was trying to be the model student after that. So it, it, um, it's because I hadn't been the model student before that. In some ways, that was good. You know, I became a, a good student. I wanted to, to go to college. I would be the first member of my family to go to college and pay for my own way through college because my parents didn't necessarily have the means to support me at that time. I acknowledge you for telling both stories because I don't know, it's not that you're telling one story and hiding the other, but one story leads to the next. And it sounds like there was a desire for redemption when you donated your kidney. Absolutely. That's, that's a very good word. You're right. The story though, had I not seen that post, I, I wouldn't have known. I, I didn't really understand what living organ donation was all about. I think I hear that from a lot of people that I talk to now. It's like, and then you know, and then the seed is planted. And then it just wouldn't leave me. It was like, yeah, this is this is something. Yeah, I could do this. So what did that path look like for you? It was pretty, it was pretty great. I um, started to do some research and learned that you couldn't take um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. And I had a love affair with them. <laughs> so um me As too, Lynn. That's the only bad thing about being a donor is I love ibuprofen. I love ibuprofen and I have to <laughs> admit that I occasionally have one. And then I usually try to drink a liter of fluid, but um, <laughs> more redemption. <laughs> exactly. So I um, I put myself on a, a three-month trial of no ibuprofen to see if I could actually live without it. And I did. So I never made that phone call that was on that sign on the car until I had those three months under my belt. All the while, I had not shared this with even my husband because in my own head, it did sound a little crazy. So I made that call and I ended up, I didn't even know where I was calling, to be honest. I didn't know what hospital this could have been in Texas or California. Turns out it was at um, Brigham and Women in Boston, which is about four hours from where I live. And so the coordinator there informed me that the person who uh, was attributed uh, to that sign had got a kidney. So, yay. So then she said, but you didn't know them anyways, Lynn. So let's keep, let's keep going. And I was like, sure. I'm um, so glad she did that. Cause I feel yeah. like a lot of times they don't take that extra step to educate about non-directed donation and, and here you're somebody who was open to the idea. Absolutely. I was like, do you have someone else? And she's like, well, Yes, <laughs> there are plenty of other people. So turns out that my workup was pretty quick. Uh, I was a good candidate. 
didn't have hepatitis. <laughs> At that point, I still was not able to donate with the Red Cross. That would come a few years later. They let me pick the time that I wanted to donate. I had a work obligation. So I, I always like to remind people, you're kind of in the driver's seat once you're cleared on when you want to donate. We set it up for um, December, which uh, was an uneventful donation. I got to stay at a VIP suite at Brigham and Women because I was a non-directed donor starting a chain. So I'd like to say that I ate well, but I had no appetite. So my husband got to eat some salads <laughs> and fresh strawberries. <laughs> he was quite happy. He was very supportive along the way, which I, I can't thank him for enough. So we had to stay in the city of Boston for a bit because of the travel distance between Boston and Bangor. So um, we had a Airbnb and he stayed there and um, was able to work remotely before that was even a thing. Who did your kidney go to? At the time, all they would tell me was it would go to a man in Cleveland. And it's funny, he, that he, he got his kidney from a woman in Baltimore I think Baltimore and Bangor must sound the same. We were allowed to write to each other. And so I think that was either at six weeks or eight weeks. And um, it was ironic, though, that I got the call from my coordinator saying, I received a letter from your kidney recipient. Do you want to get it? And I was like, well, hell yes. And she said, okay, I'll mail it to you. And I said, no, no, no no, scan that an email. I need to see it today. <laughs> but she, she followed up and, and I actually went back and I um, have that three pages on, on um, lined paper. I want to read one line because I just read this yesterday, getting ready for this interview. And this still speaks to me. I hope you will be pleased to know I take this gift very seriously and follow my doctor's orders to the letter. I will not let your gift be in vain. My phone number was in my letter to him. And his name is Aaron, by the way. And um, so we, we spoke the night that night, and it was wonderful. His wife, Marie, was not able to donate to him because they weren't a match. But the next day, she donated to a stranger at Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. And um, so she's also a donor, which is great. Um, on our two-year anniversary, Lori... My husband and I would fly out there and meet him. And that came about because I saw Marie posted on our one-year anniversary, this amazing cake shaped like a kidney with <laughs> Twizzlers coming out of it. What dietitian doesn't like Twizzlers? They're <laughs> fat-free, by the way. So I was like, oh, so I'm so jealous. I, I want to be there. So that's when we started making plans for the second anniversary. Now, all these years later, Aaron calls me on December 8th, our anniversary, and, and wishes me happy anniversary. And he's doing great as far as I know. He's still off dialysis. I'll get that update soon, I hope. And uh, so I, so my husband and I traveled out there for our second anniversary and got to meet Aaron and his whole family. His mom gave me a hug that I think lasted five minutes long. And that was so special to me. His two grand daughters both said that I saved their papa. And um, I'm not sure that's entirely true. It helped open my eyes to what chronic kidney disease is mm -hmm. and how it, it doesn't just live in a vacuum. It doesn't just impact that person. It's just so horrible for the whole family. That was very special. How did it make you feel to hear that? It made me feel 
uncomfortable. <laughs> it, it is at times uncomfortable to be told you're a hero or you're, you know, you saved my life. Those are, those are big words. I don't feel, and I'm sure you feel this way too. I don't really feel any different than most people. You know, why this idea appealed to me? I don't know. I don't know. I did get to participate in Dr. Abigail Marsh's study at Georgetown twice now, actually. So is it because my amygdala in my brain is bigger? God, I wish something in my brain were bigger. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know um, if, if that's the reason. I, I only wish that, you know, more people would see these stories and kind of feel compelled to donate. Do you feel redeemed? I'm not sure. I I think I need another decade to process that. I'm I'm so grateful that abortion was an option to me, um, and I would make that choice again. And I I do have a belief in God, and I feel like um, there's not a scorecard. I know that. I know that in my head. I think it did bring me peace, and obviously. I felt, but I felt I wasn't done. And I don't, I don't mean to imply that I wasn't done because I hadn't had enough redemption. I think my decision to move forward with the liver donation just was I wasn't done. I felt there was more I could do to help. I had spent, I changed my career. I had worked in dialysis. I just wish I could have grown another kidney and, and helped more people. So when you donated your kidney, were you aware that you could also donate part of a liver? No, I wasn't. I looked into it twice, and it was the second time that I continued toward the path and ultimately did donate. So you, what year did you donate your kidney, Lynn? 2014. Okay. And what year did you donate your liver? I donated my liver in March of 2022, this year. So I just had my five-month anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. You expressed that you didn't feel like you were done. At what point after your kidney donation did you really start considering liver donation as well? I looked into it about four or five years after. And then again, I was being told because of where I live, I would have to travel to Massachusetts, that I would have to basically stay there for a month with a support person. How could I do that to my spouse? So I just, I decided no. But the idea kept nagging away at me, and um, and I was reading on social media that other people had maybe not had to live away for as long. So I looked at it again and filled out an application and got a call from the coordinator and learned that some of those policies that had been true a few years prior had had loosened, and that may be because of the pandemic. So I was able to to go through, and we only had to stay in the local area for about a five days after. Can you educate us a little bit about liver donation and how that's even possible? I'll try. I'll try. So with liver donation, it's it's about which lobe of your liver you're going to take. And in my case, when they did the CT, when they did the imaging that would look at it, and often they told me with non-directed donors, which I am, I donated my liver to a stranger, that they like to only take the left lobe. It's a smaller lobe and it's less risky. But because the size of a female and my left lobe 
being smaller, it does sort of restrict who that donation can go to. So it would either have to go to a child or a very small adult. And in this case, they had a match for me within their own program because they weren't yet doing remote donations. Apparently with the liver, the amount of time outside of your body that it can live is quite a bit shorter than with the kidney. So the recipient and donor pretty much need to be next to each other in the same hospital. So they found uh, a young woman. I was just told that she was 23 and had been born with a bile issue that had required some surgery as an infant, but would be sort of a band-aid to get her through, hopefully to her 20s when she would need a transplant. And she was at that age. She weighed about 50 kilograms, so somewhere about 100 pounds, which is why my small size of the left lobe of my liver should have been sufficient for her. And you saw this person before your surgery? I did see her. She, through some sort of mistake that happened, I learned her first name was Rebecca when they were registering me for an appointment and checking on insurance. So I knew her name was Rebecca and I knew she was 23. So when my husband and I were waiting in the surgical waiting room, everyone else in that waiting room had white hair, <laughs> but, <laughs> but she um, had, she was very tiny. She was so tiny. She might've been five feet tall and she had her hair in pigtails and um, she sat in a love seat with her mom across from my husband and I and don't know if she knew that I would be her donor and but I knew she was my recipient and then they called her name Rebecca and she stood up and I thought I'm gonna be on the same floor recovering with her and I have children that are now actually a couple of years older than Rebecca and our surgery was long my surgery ended at around 5 30 that day the coordinator called my husband every couple of hours, but it went at least three hours longer than they had predicted. And that was, I think, because there were some issues with freeing up her liver in order to accept mine. The surgeries had to be timed carefully. And when my surgery ended, my team went in to help the other surgical team and then somewhere between 5.30 and uh, midnight, she um, died. She coded multiple times and didn't survive. This is something I wouldn't learn until the next day when my uh, coordinators and one of my two surgeons came in and held my hand and touched me and told me in such a, a caring, a very caring way that she had coded and uh, I still don't know more than that about her passing, but I had um, hoped to have some kind of a relationship with her like I do with Erin and that wasn't to be. And my team was devastated and I was devastated and I can only imagine her mom. I can only imagine her mom. So I spent most of my time in the hospital in tears. And it's sad because I didn't know her. And yet I had hope 
for her. And, and um, I still have this pretty challenging recovery physically to get through. And now emotionally, my team was amazing. They uh, agreed to help me cover um, counseling that would be set up upon discharge. And a close friend of mine who is a psychologist helped get me in to someone because waiting times for them in Maine this spring were up to six months. But I was able to get into someone in about four weeks. So thank God for friends. Help. When I was discharged and stayed at the hotel as I was needed to before I was able to go home, I Googled her name and her date of death. And I found her obituary. And I knew it was her. There was a photo of her. She didn't have pigtails like the day I met her, but very cute. And in her obituary, it said that she had been hopeful for the first time in a long time because she, her team had found her the perfect match. I take some small comfort, Lori, I guess, in knowing that at least I gave her hope. That day that I saw her and she stood up and walked into the OR, she had hope. Lynn, this is the third or fourth time I've heard you tell that story, and it doesn't get any easier for me to hear. It's hard to share. I actually got through that without tears, although oftentimes I cannot. And certainly in the first few months, I was, I was kind of a mess, actually. But I'm so grateful that I had friends and family that checked in on me often to see how I was doing. And, um, you know, I had some guilt about something that was so silly. I shouldn't have felt guilty about it. But I chose to have my surgery in March, even though I could have had my surgery in December. Again, I I pointed out that non-directed donors get to pick their time. I, I think I said earlier in this show how much I love, love, love snow in the winter. And so I wanted to have a fun winter of snow sports, and I did. But I, I kind of later would replay in my head, like, if I hadn't done that, if I had just gone to surgery earlier, would Rebecca still be here to be alive and to talk about this with me? But, you know, you stepped forward when maybe nobody else did. I know that. I know that, Lori. And my my surgeon and my coordinator both shared that same thing. I said, you know, with living donation, it's a little different than kidney donation, uh, where the way you get a cadaver liver is you have to be really sick. It's not about how long you've needed one, which is often more the case with the kidney. So she was at, in this in-between state where she wasn't sick enough to get a cadaver liver, but sick enough that it was impacting her life. She had been in the hospital three times in the winter before we had our our surgery. So living donation for liver is so important because by the time people are sick enough to get a cadaver liver, they may not survive their surgery. I think it's it's somewhere where our mind doesn't go. You know, you're stepping forward to help. And, and I don't think that most donors consider that it's a possibility that their recipient would die, especially suddenly. It, it certainly never, ever entered my head. How are you doing today? I think I'm getting better. I, um, I planted a magnolia tree in my backyard 
Um, we had lost a, a very lovely magnolia tree a few years back when we put a fence in. And um, I always wanted another one. And so we we planted it and I had a sign made that said, um, in memory of Rebecca. And um, this is a cute little story. We went away on vacation this summer and my neighbor, she's a nurse who works in dialysis and her two kids helped water some of my plants and her five-year-old daughter watered my um, magnolia tree every day and would not let her um, three and a half year old brother because he would be too brutal about the watering <laughs> of this and she said she was taking care of Rebecca's tree and when I heard that story I that was just so special that someone else was caring for that tree that understood the meaning and the value at five isn't that special it is yeah do you regret your decision to donate your liver? That's a good question. I, If you'd asked me that in the first month, maybe, maybe. Because I thought if I didn't donate to her, she'd still be alive. It wasn't that I had to go through a pretty rigorous recovery from liver donation. It's just that if I hadn't done it, maybe she'd still be alive. Um, but as my surgeon reminded me, I was her best hope. Mm. and. Um, I gave her hope. So I'm coming to think about this a little bit differently now. Do you have a 30,000 foot view as to kind of why this happened and what you're supposed to learn from it as a human? I don't just now. No. It might take a while. I think it's going to take a long while. I think some of the anniversaries are going to be hard for me, that one-year anniversary. and That's uh, when they'll invite me back to give me uh, a, a CT scan so they'll look at my um, liver and be able to quantify if it's regrown. Now they say it should be all regrown by three months, but um, it'll be hard to be there at that time. It was hard to go back for my, um, so far I've been back for the one month visit and the three month visit, and it's hard to be back there. It's just hard to go through those doors. I can only imagine what that's like. I imagine it's probably hard for the transplant team too. I, I think they probably don't want to see me. <laughs> it, it had to be so hard on them. You know, I'm worried that this death could hurt their ability to help more people too, because I know people track outcomes. Mm -hmm. I hope it didn't, but it's a worry. So double donor, any, any final thoughts about being a double donor and being a, this special unicorn? Do you, how many other double donors do you know, Lynn? I, I think I know about four or five now. And, uh, by the way, there were at least three amazing double donors. Uh, one is a triple donor, too, by the way. Kidney, liver, and stem cells. Um, he must be the most rare unicorn of all. <laughs> he is. But there is not a formal mentoring program for liver donation. But I hope that'll change. And I've certainly made myself available on social media when people have questions because I was definitely well mentored by people uh, on my path. You know what strikes me about the double donors I know? Because I know seven of them. 
and you're all really normal. And I remember <laughs> when we were going through the um, our interview process for the documentary Crowdsource for Life, the first one that I ever spoke to on the phone, I just remember thinking like, what's this person going to be like? Are they going to be like this push my body to the limit type of person? And not a single one of them are. They're they're wonderful humans like you. They all had different reasons. And many of them expressed that they they did it the first time and it was rewarding and they just didn't feel like they were done. And I don't think everybody feels that way. I definitely don't feel that way. I, I wouldn't want to donate my liver. And it's, you know, maybe if I hadn't donated a kidney and somebody I love needed a liver, I would, but there's just uh, it's just not there for me. And I have so much respect and honor for those of you who've gone on to do it again. Thank you. I'm glad you called us normal. <laughs> I feel pretty normal. Although I, I, I will say this, that when, when I was considering the liver donation and I had experienced some negativity when sharing that I was going to donate my kidney with people, I was far, far more restrictive about who I shared that with. Uh, most people didn't know about it until about a month after my donation because I just didn't, I didn't want to hear any negativity. And honestly, it does sound a little crazy. And then when you did tell them a month later, it was a, probably a much bigger story than you anticipated having to share. It was, it was, but the people who are good friends, they were there for me. I really appreciate the support they gave me. Well, Lynn, that was a huge story for you to share today. And I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being so free with your story. And it's, it's really beautiful. And I, I wish you healing and all the support that you need to, to move through this situation and find redemption. Thank you very much, Lori. So something pretty special happened after Lynn and I recorded this episode. Lynn received a letter around her six-month post-op appointment from Rebecca's mom and a thank you card from Rebecca. Lynn says this went a long way on her journey to healing. If you're considering living donation, Lynn's story isn't meant to deter you from donating. The survival rate of kidney and liver recipients after the first year is over 95%. What happened to Rebecca is uncommon, but sadly it does happen. On average, most people who receive liver transplants live more than 10 years and many live 20 years or more. A living kidney donor functions on average 12 to 20 years and a deceased donor kidney from 8 to 12 years. And patients who get a kidney transplant before dialysis live an average of 10 to 15 years longer than if they stayed on dialysis. There's a farmer in Missouri thriving from a kidney transplant he received 56 years ago. He holds the record for the longest lasting transplanted kidney. And we know a lot more now than when he had his transplant 56 years ago. Thanks so much for listening to Donor Diaries. I'm your host, Lori Lee. And if Lynn's story brought tears to your eyes like it did mine, I invite you to let it inspire you to do something extraordinarily out-of-the-way kind for someone you meet today that inspires hope, just because you can.